when Haney contacted me post our meeting, I thought he wanted me to just share my um, pieces of paper with him. But he's like, no, I want you to share what you have, what the Lord has laid on your heart. So here I am, and it is absolutely a beautiful privilege for me to be here. And, and I have to say, uh, I was a bit nervous of where I'm going and what I'm going to share, but um, for the music to end with uh, that line of your goodness is running after me and with every breath that I am able, I, I have to tell you that that song has been my mantra for the last two weeks that I cannot, I play it again and again and again and um, you'll understand why after I've shared today what the Lord has laid on on my heart. I mean, it's it's been, it's actually about the breath of, of God. So I just thought, wow, okay, God, what an introduction that with every breath that I am able, I want to just honor you with everything that I have. So I begin today to share with you the words from a very old hymn that says, breathe on me, breath of God, and fill me with life anew. So breathing is something that we've been doing since we came into this world. And I think sometimes we take it for granted. And the average person takes about 20,000 breaths a day. We sigh, we hold our breath, we gasp. We blow bubbles, we blow up balloons, we blow out candles, although I don't know if that's uh, allowable anymore in COVID. You're not supposed to blow out the candles on birthday cakes anymore. So, but breath is mentioned very many times in scripture. And we first see the Hebrew word for it is ruach. And it is, it means spirit wind or breath, whereas in English we have several words for the breath or, or spirit, but in the Hebrew language they only have one. In the second verse of Genesis where we read that God's spirit, his ruach, hovered over the waters of the formless earth, and, and we read about it in the second chapter, we find God blowing his breath of life into Adam. The message uh, translation says that God blew into the nostrils the breath of life, right? Many refer to this as creator breath. And when we came to life, when God breathed in us, the hymn, Breath of God, Breathe on Me, was actually written by Edwin Hatch. In uh, He's from England. And it was intended as a hymn for ordination. He wrote it specifically for ordination services and it was first privately printed in 1878 and then it was published in uh, the Congregational Psalmist Hymnal in, in, 18, in the 1886s. And so he actually grew up in a non-conformist home and he was educated at Pembroke uh, College in Oxford in England and believe it or not he actually taught here at, well, at at the Trinity College in Toronto and he taught at a high school in Quebec so all those years ago this hymn that we sing um, was written by someone who actually um, was was in Canada so the hymn goes like this breathe on me breath of God fill me with life anew that I may love the way you love, 
and do what you would do. Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure, until my will is one with yours to do and to endure. Breathe on me, breath of God, so shall I never die, but live with you the perfect life of all eternity. And like I said, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit is the same as wind or air or breath. And thus, in this text, the spirit of God is referred to as the breath of God. So this prayer, this text was really a prayer for renewal by God's spirit in us. So um, it takes us to that Psalm, Psalm 51, that I think many of us are familiar with and maybe even have it as a life verse. It's Psalm 51 verses 10 and 12 that says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. So when Hatch penned these words to that song, Breathe On Me, uh, they, he was um, said to have a very childlike faith. And I think that, that that description fits his text very, very well. And when we look at that psalm, and by the way, when I'm um, giving you scriptures today, I use the New Living Translation, so that um, just in case you're wondering which scriptures are, you know, which translation I'm on. And then if I, sometimes I use the Message Bible too. So first of all, when we look at the first stanza of that song, we see that um, the, the author is saying, Lord, teach me to live a life of love. Breathe on me and teach me to love, to love the way that you love and to do what you want me to do, right? I don't know if you're familiar with her, but one of uh, an author from many years ago, um, she's Joyce Meyer, she wrote a book called Reduce Me to Love. And that book really, and the, the title of the book got me because I'm like, how do you get reduced to love? Because when we look in, when we look at that word reduce, we think it's making less than, but and, and, how, and when you think of love, you think of more, right? So much because your heart is filled with love. So love is a lot. And uh, so I, I think what caught my eye was the fact that how do you reduce yourself to love? <laughs> because you're supposed to increase your love, not reduce your love. But um, when you read the book and you see what she meant, it, it really challenges to look at all of the parts of what is love, right? And we think it's one dimensional, but it's it's actually the very essence of who God is. And when we think of Hatch writing those words, he's, he's like, teach me to love the way you do. And we are taught to love. Uh, we love because Christ first loves us. And we see that in 1 John 49. We love because he first loved us. That's why we are able to love. And of course, that chapter in the scriptures that's quoted so much in, in, in 
most weddings or around Valentine's Day, we're going into the month of love here. And uh, you will hear people speak on or around 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter in the Bible that most people refer to. But if we really dig deep into those meanings of love, we will, we will see it does cause us to be reduced a little bit because we have to change the way we think of love and what love is and how we are showing love. Uh, if we really want to love the way that God loves and do what he wants us to do. Because I just love the way that it begins. And it says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So I could have all these abilities, but if I didn't have love, I would be nothing. And it says, if I had the gift of prophecy and if I even understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge and I had faith that could move mountains, but I had not love, I would be nothing, right? And even if I gave everything that I had away, even if I sacrificed my body, that I can make both things about it and I didn't love others I would actually gain nothing. I think when we when we read those words truly and have a deeper understanding of them, we have to we have to go. I want to find out what what is this love about, right? And when the the chapter in Corinthians uh, goes that love is patient, uh, I read I read an article once that said. If you really want to have patience, you have to choose the longest line in the grocery lineup and then tell you that to practice your patience. And believe you me, I'm not a person that likes lineups. My daughter laughs at me all the time. Uh, if I, and especially with when COVID came out and we had to stand in these big long lines, two people, two feet apart, well, we have to, we still have to do that every now and then. But I would look at the lineup at the grocery store and I'd be like, yeah, no, not happening. And she would joke. She'd be like, mom, it goes so quickly. I'm like, no, I don't like long lines. So I guess you can tell what my level of patience is, right? Because <laughs> I'm not, I don't like standing in those long lines. There's nothing in me that desires to do that. So I guess if I'm going to challenge myself in the next little while, it's going to be to stand in those long lines, right? So love is kind. Um, it, it is not jealous. We don't want to take away from others. We don't want to be what they want to have, what they've got. Um, it's not boastful or proud. And I mean, we could preach a month of Sundays on all of these topics separately. Um, but what does it mean to be kind? What does it mean that I'm not jealous? Am I able to give someone else um, accolades or um, trust without wanting to be what they are or have what they have, right? Um, or when I do something, want to boast that oh, this is what I've done and look what I've done and how I how amazing I am. And then it goes on to tell us about how love is not rude. Um, sometimes we want our way. And I just think of what's going on in the news right now um, about there's difference of opinions on both sides of what's going on. And are we being honoring to one another? Are we 
honoring God in what we say or how we respond to someone who has a different opinion to who, to what we do and how they uh, line up. Um, are we being rude to them? Are we being rude uh, to each other, right? It doesn't demand its own way. And I know there's lots of ways we can do that. Uh, when we work together with people, sometimes we get this attitude of it's my way or the highway, um, instead of being kind enough to listen to someone else and, and maybe possibly consider that there's more than one way or there's, you know, you could say one thing and I could say the same thing, but just in a different way. But sometimes we, we just rude. We don't, we don't bother to listen to one another. And we get irritable and we keep record of wrongs. Oh boy, we keep record of wrongs. How many times do we stuff something down and say, just you wait and become passive aggressive with each other uh, in the way that we handle each other? And the scriptures say to us that love never gives up. Sometimes we just give up on each other. We stop praying because we don't see the possibility in it. We stop believing that there's goodness in someone because we don't see the goodness, the, the possibility of it. And we never lose faith. If we are walking in accordance, God never lost faith in us. He, he still doesn't lose faith in us, even when we walk away from him and we do it all the time, right? God is always hopeful. His messages, the scriptures are full of hope. We always have hope. And it endures, it teaches us to endure through circumstances. I think oftentimes when we think of praying, we want, we want to pray a situation away rather than endure that situation, knowing that God will be with us. So to love the way that you love God and to, to be what you want them us to be. So like I said, we can go through the scripture word for word, line for line, and come up with in fact, a year's worth of sermons on that. But a reminder is that when we see um, what it means to be reduced to love, what does loving the way Christ taught us to love mean? How does it play out? And um, it enables us to just take a pause and rethink uh, love on a different level. And I, and I think maybe this month being the love month might be a good idea for us to put that as one of the things we're going to look at uh, when we reduce that love chapter to little bits of pieces. Let's figure out how we can love the way that God loves. So breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life anew as God breathes his Holy Spirit into us and teach us to love that the way that he loves. And, and they're not just loving, but doing what he does to follow his example. Um, it then goes into the next step of until my heart is pure. So the breath of God breathing on us until our heart is pure, um, until my will is one with yours to do and to India, right? Again, Psalm 51 is reminding us that we're asking God to clean our hearts, to, to renew that loyal spirit in us, uh, not to banish us from his presence, not to take his Holy Spirit away from us, 
but to restore to us the joy of our salvation and make me, I like the fact that the New Living Translation says, make me willing to obey you. Because I think sometimes we want to obey God, but we're not really always willing to obey God. We choose our own way despite. And in, in unpacking that section, um, I want us to just have a, a look at the prophet Ezekiel. And I'll just give you a little a glimpse into the book of Ezekiel uh, so that because it'll be a lot if we try to read 40 chapters in this um, this time that we have together so Ezekiel was he was one of the first among the ex exiles from Judah uh, to be taken away from Jerusalem right and we see Ezekiel sitting beside this river he was around 30 years of age and that actually would have been the year that he would have been made a priest according to the Levitical practices of his day. And he sees this vision. He sees this vision of four strange winged creatures with four faces and there are wheels under them. And there's this throne on top of it that's depicting a man-like image that is glowing. And this is a vision of the glory of God. And it's through this vision that Ezekiel is called into service by God in this refugee camp that he's sitting in to warn the nation of Israel about their disobedience. And in that vision, God's, uh, Ezekiel sees God's presence leaving the temple in Jerusalem because at that time the Israelites uh, had disobeyed God. They were um, They'd taken idols into the temple and they were worshiping idols and the women were worshiping different gods. Uh, and so God cannot be, his presence cannot be where um, he is not welcome. So he sees that. So Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is brought to the people of Israel to tell them about what they've done, that they've broken covenant with God and that they've walked away from him. Um, and we see that in the book, there's a lot of pictures of like uh, what they would call street theater being performed by Ezekiel because he he's called to make a model of Jerusalem and break it down in front of the people to show them that there's a destruction that they're doing, as well as he's called to cut his hair uh, and to chop it into small pieces. And then he's also called to depict the scapegoat by lying on his side and, and eat um, food that's baked over excrement uh, to depict the, the foods that they're going to eat in exile. And this is, uh, God is using him to tell the Israelites, you are, you are, your disobedience has brought you out of the presence of God. You have walked away from the presence of God, that he's no longer breathing. You're not taking that in on him, right? So God tells Ezekiel, you're going to tell these people this, but they're not going to listen to you. But as he sees in that vision that the presence of God is leaving Jerusalem. Now, I want you to understand that even though the presence of God has left the temple because of all the idol worship that's going on there, God never abandons the people. He never abandons us. He goes with us where we go. So he enters into Babylon, into exile with the people of Israel. And we see how this unfolds because he's, he pronounces his judgment on Israel and then on all the nations around him. He uses Ezekiel to tell them that 
you have been, you're going to go into exile. And then there's also punishment for the nations around you who have caused you to stumble and that you have followed, right? But then we come to this beautiful chapter 36 in Ezekiel and God gives the message of hope, right? And he promises that he will give them a new king, a new Messiah to raise up a new David, a future messianic king. And this king will be the kind of the leader that Israel needed but did not get. And God says, I will raise up a new Israel for you and I will give you hearts that are softened towards God. And he said he will put his spirit within them. So Ezekiel 36 verses 25 to 28 says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. He said, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Right? I will put my spirit in in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And then you will live in Israel at the land I gave your ancestors long ago. And he said, and you will be my people and I will be your God. And that's his message to us today that he will give us that new spirit. He will breathe that life into us. He will um, give us that new spirit. But then Ezekiel gets another vision. And I'm sure you've heard this vision lots of times depicted in sermons. It's the valley of the dry bones. And God tells Ezekiel that this is a metaphorical vision of the state of Israel's spiritual state. And I think sometimes we can resonate with that as being where we are at, right? The valley depicts a lot of what happened. Many people died and they, they died in exile, but it was also to showing them that they had broken their covenant with God. They were spiritually dead, right? And God tells Ezekiel that his spirit is coming back to bring the people back to life. And these bones, we see he's telling him that this dry bones will come to life again. And so this ruach, this wind blows and causes these bones to stand up. And he breathes life into them. And he causes the skin to grow. And Ezekiel sees all these new humans in front of him. And so this is that recollection of the story uh, of what we saw in, in uh, chapter 2 in creation, the creation story in Genesis, where God uses the dirt and then a divine breath to create humans, to breathe life into us. So... We see the rebellion of Israel and the humanity that causes the death. And the only way around this is for God to bring about a new creation. In, in other words, to bring us back to life, to breathe new life into us through his spirit. And that's where we find ourselves at this chapter of Ezekiel, when God is, is telling him and he tells us, I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you hearts of flesh, right? Um, a clean heart, uh, a pure heart, as we're talking about, is powerless if it lacks the right spirit. And if we have a wrong spirit towards God and how he provides, 
Um, we are also guilty of being jealous and unforgiving and being critical and thoughtless and hard-spirited towards people around us. Again, it goes back to that loving the way God loves and, and creating in us a pure heart, right? Um, when we speak about the word right, it's not a contrast to the word wrong. Being right means to be upright, to be honest, to be transparent in every detail of our Christian lives. You see, David in committing adultery with Bathsheba wasn't wrong. He was guilty of deception. He was deceived, right? As soldiers of Christ, there's no easy parade days for us, right? We need to be on the ready. We need to be upright and ready. Uh, we need to be alert and waiting for our next uh, a command of obedience to God. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that can renew that right spirit within us. Uh, the human spirit can only be sanctified and made hallowed by the divine spirit. Right? And as we yield to God's control, he keeps our spirits right and steadfast and pure and ready to serve us where he appoints us. Uh, we read in, in Matthew where Jesus spoke to um, the, the priests and he said to them, uh, you brood of snakes, how can evil men speak what is good and right for whatever is in your heart determines what you say? So, and, and, and again, in Luke 6, 45, we see the words that says, and a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. This is what you say flows from what is in your heart. So, Jesus says the problem is not our mouths, the problem is our heart. And I love the way that the Message Bible puts this. Um, it says, uh, this, is, this is Psalm 51 from the Message Bible, the, the one that I've been reading along. It says, soak me in your laundry and I'll come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow white life. Tune me into foot-tapping songs. Set these once broken bones to dancing. Don't look too close for blemishes and give me a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. Don't throw me out with the trash or fail to breathe holiness in me. Bring me back from gray exile. Put fresh wind in my sails. Give me a job teaching rebels your ways so the lost can find their way home. Commute my death sentence, God, my salvation, God, and I will sing anthems to your life-giving ways. Unbutton my lips, dear God, and I'll let loose your praise. So we've heard this hymnist saying, God, teach me to love and clean me up. And then the last part of it is that he's asking us, he's asking to enter into an intimacy with God. And I love the, the word intimacy because I always think, I always break it down to go into me, you see. 
So into me, God, what do you see? And so the breathe on me, breath of God, so shall I never die, but live with you the perfect life for all eternity. So when the Lord breathes his spirit in us, even though our bodies may die, our spirits will live on with him because we are, we are in um, commune and community with God. Uh, we are with his Holy Spirit and there his spirit is with man's spirit and in, uh, we are with him forever, right? It speaks of living a life of intimacy with God. And so when we have a life of love and we invite God to clean us up, and to renew that right spirit in us. Um, that It reminds me of that story that I'm sure most pastors have used it one or <laughs> maybe several times in, in different giving uh, of um, sermons. Uh, the man who was visited by a pastor and they were sitting in front of a fire and the pastor, this was a man who decided he didn't need church, he didn't need community. And he, the pastor took one of the coals from the fire and he separated from the rest and watched as this coal slowly died. And then he placed it back and he blew on it and it caught fire again. And it was able to warm that room and light up the room with the rest of the burning embers. And the lesson that the pastor gave to that man was that we need each other. We need to be in community. We can't live alone apart from uh, community and especially our community with God. And I like the idea that I just think if that fire was allowed to run riot, it would light up the world. And I'm not talking about in a destructive way. I'm talking about in a good way, that if we let our light run riot, we would light up the world. If we allowed the Holy Spirit to breathe on us, breathe in us a new spirit, right? So in the act of apostles, Luke writes, God gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And God breathed his Holy Spirit into us, the one who moves us to love and to serve. That same spirit descending on the disciples in the upper room and later on the small band of brothers and sisters in Hernut when they were in those prayer rooms in the 1700s and they played, prayed around the clock. The spirit breath moved in among the brethren. And we now know that as the Moravian Pentecost when one of the... Um, revivals had happened. So this song that was written so long ago was based on the scriptures from Joel that says, uh, I will pour out my spirit upon your people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. And from John 20, he says, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's saying, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And then he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. So, and also in Ezekiel, when he's talking about that, I will put my spirit in you and you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So what does it look like to have the spirit of God in you, cleansing you? teaching you and abiding with you. So I want to share this special something with you. 
it changed my life. And I believe this is what Pastor Haney was talking about that touched him in a special way. So I have entered into a mentoring group with Church Renewal and it's, it's a phenomenal group and it mentors pastors and leaders how to disciple first themselves and then leaders and people and that choose to be in the part of the body of Christ with them. And one of the things they teach you is listening prayer. And it's from a place of searching for answers. Prayer is very important to me. It's a very passion of mine. And I'm, I'm always reading up about prayer and um, the different uh, ways we can pray and how we can connect with God. And it's not just about me coming to God with a grocery list. It's about me being in relationship with God and being intimate with God, um, how he sees into me. But sometimes I don't always want to see what God sees. But one thing I've learned from um, searching in these ways is that God never condemns me. He always corrects me, but he never condemns me. He'll be like, ah, Shaman, that wasn't okay. Um, how can we be, how can we do this better? So I always determine, I always say to people, if you feel convicted, the, the difference between conviction and condemnation there's a big difference, right? Conviction is not condemnation. You won't feel condemned and meant to feel less than. Conviction teaches us to come up higher, teaches us to go, check my heart. I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that attitude, right? So um, I had to learn to stop and I had to learn to breathe and take time to really sit in the presence of God and and it was in searching uh, breath prayer that I came across this teaching when I was doing some research on breath prayer. And there was this teacher that was addressing this class of students. And I'm going to quote to you now from his teaching. And he said, I unfortunately don't even have his name or anything. It was one of those things that I, I came across. I can't find it again, but it impacted me. I had written all these notes on it and I quote what he's saying. Um, so don't ask me what his name was and where he is, because uh, I can't tell you, but I'm just saying, this is not mine, this is his, and I learned it, I believe it's from God. He gave it to me. <laughs> he put it on me, he downloaded it to me. <laughs> so he said, as he was speaking to the student, he said, you know, you probably, a lot of you know this, but when you write in Hebrew, you actually just write the consonants. And what it means to be an educated Jew is to have memorized the appropriate vowels and to know how to fill in the appropriate vowels in the appropriate places. But this is the part that I want to leave with you, he said. He said, did you know that the consonants used in the spelling of the sacred name Yahweh are in fact the only consonants that if correctly pronounced, do not allow you to use your tongue or close your lips. I know you're all going, what the heck? Anyway, in fact, we know that the pronouncing of the sacred name was an attempt to imitate and replicate breath. That it was an inhalation and an exhalation. So I want you to listen. Yeah. 
So just like the teacher that I heard it from, I share it with you because it can change your life. If you hold on to this and begin to live it and experience it, to practice it, your prayer life will change dramatically. But I want you to notice it has nothing to do with thinking. In fact, it moves the entire experience to our cellular body, our corporal breath level. And it means that the first word you ever spoke was the name of God. And the last word you will ever speak. You don't have to try and remember, do I want to say a prayer before I die? You're going to anyway. That last breath that you take on your deathbed will be the name of God. And it's the one thing that you're done constantly in your life. And you're doing it now. You're breathing. And you know that there's no Catholic way of breathing and an Anglican way of breathing. There's no American way of breathing or Canadian way of breathing. There's no English way of breathing or Hindu way or Muslim way of breathing. We all do this together. And this is a wonderful God that has made the God self available and de so democratically accessible to all of us. This gift is given. The only problem is that this gift is not being received. We label religion into the series of moral achievements and we make religion a bunch of hoops that you've got to jump through and about a bunch of forms that we've got to bow down to instead of leading people to know something to be true for themselves. So breathe on me, breath of God. I didn't get that. Fill me with life anew, that I may love the way you love and do what you would do. Breathe on me, breath of God. Until my heart is pure, until my will is one with yours to do and to endure. Breathe on me, breath of God, so shall I never die. I live with you the perfect life for all eternity. Let us pray, gracious God, the giver of life the very breath in our lives. Lord, I pray that today we will take and experience you anew. That we will realize that having the Spirit of God living in us is such an incredible privilege. That Lord, we can walk around each day with each breath knowing that the breath of God is in us. That, Lord, we are calling on your name with every breath that we take. So I pray, Father God, that you will use this to cleanse our hearts and make us new and bring us into 
that place of loving you and loving others and drawing close. In Jesus' name we pray. As we enter into uh, the time of communion, I uh, told Pastor Haney that I want to share a story with you uh, that um, I love to use when communion time comes. So maybe just sit back and close your eyes and visualize um, so I'm not sure if you have your wafer and your um, juice near you because uh, we will proceed to take, uh, to do communion together after that. The story is called The Ragman. Even before the dawn on Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking in the alleys of the city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes and he was calling in a clear, resonant voice. Rags, new rags for old. I'll take your tired old rags. Rags, now that is a wonder, I thought, for the man stood six foot four with arms like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed with brightness. Could he find no better job than this to be a ragman in one of the rougher areas of the city? And soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into her handkerchief, shedding thousands of tears. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his car. And quietly, he walked to the woman and asked, will you give me your rag and I'll give you another? And he slipped the handkerchief from her eyes and laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. And then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her tear-stained handkerchief to his own face and began to weep. weep to sob as grievously as she had done. Yet, she was left behind without a tear. Rags, rags, new rags for old. And in a little while, the ragman came across a little girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage. Her eyes were blank and empty, and a single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew a lovely bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag and I'll give you mine. He loosened the bandage, removed it and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set upon her head. And I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage went the wound and against his brow ran a dark, rich flow of his own blood. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding ragman. 
Now the sun was at its height by now and the ragman seemed more and more in a hurry. Do you have a job? The ragman inquired of a man leaning against a telephone pole. Are you crazy? The man sneered, pulling away from the pole and revealing the right sleeve of his jacket that was empty. So give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. And the one-armed man took off his jacket and so did the ragman. And I trembled at what I saw. For the ragman's arms stayed in his jacket. And when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs. But the ragman only had one. By now I had to run to keep up with this ragman. And though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling the cart with one arm, stumbling with exhaustion, he still ran on ahead faster. I wept to see the change in this man. I hoped to see his sorrow. And yet I needed to see where he was going in such a hurry, perhaps to discover what drove him so. The little old ragman came upon a landfall, a garbage dump. He climbed the hill and with tormented labor, he cleared a little space on the hill. And then he sighed, he lay down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and he covered his bones with a jacket and he died. And how I cried to witness this death. I slumped in a car and wailed and mourned because I had come to love that ragman and every other face that faded in the wonder of this man. When I saw that he was dead, I couldn't keep from crying. I cried myself to sleep and I slept all the way through Saturday to Sunday. But then on Sunday morning, I was awakened by a violent light, a pure, hard, demanding light shining against my, fun, my face. And I looked up and I saw the last and the first wonder of all, there was the ragman folding his clothes, a scar on his face, but alive. And besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow nor of age and all the rags he had gathered shined with a clean sheen. And I was in awe of the transformation, but humbled by the sorry state of my ordinary sameness. I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen, I walked into the ragman's presence and I told him my name and that I felt like a sorry figure next to him. And then I took off all my clothes and I said with dear yearning in my voice, dress me, dress me with your rags. He dressed me, my Lord dressed me. He dressed my feet. My body, he dressed all of me. He put new rags on. And now I glow in the sight of the ragman, this ragman, my Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we come to the table today, we recognize that we have rags that need to be given to you. But that, Father, you come with open arms. And you have a gift, a gift of life that you are breathing into each and every one of us. 
And so, God, I pray that right now, if there is someone who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they will sense this calling that you are calling them and that they will exchange their rags for your shiny new, the very breath of life into them. Oh, God. We are so grateful for that sacrifice that Jesus came to make for us on the cross. That we can come to you and acknowledge that you are our Lord and Savior. And so I want us to remember that on that night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. So when we take it, we remember what he did for us on that cross, that he died for us, and that we can come to him anytime, anywhere, any place, with any problem. And he will give us new for all. And so when you eat this, do this in remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us on that cross. Let us eat together. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of salvation. The cup, the blood that was shed for you and for many, and whenever you do this, you do this in remembrance of what I've done. Let us drink in remembrance together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of the cross. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of breath. Breath of God. Breathe on us today and as we separate from this place may our lives be transformed and made anew with every breath that we take may we honor and glorify you in jesus holy precious